You're listening to Arsenal Pass, a flesh and blood podcast for players by players. And all about strategy, leveling up, and the latest news in the world of Wraith. Welcome to Arsenal Pass. So, Hayden, who's your team for Sydney? Oh, dude, I've got a great team for Sydney. I've got, uh, I got Dr. Dan Mackay, the oh. doctors in the house, coming all the way from New Zealand to join, uh, tracing that PTI. And then we've got Nick Butcher, who's, you know, I think people know as, as Matt Rogers' testing partner, but Australian Fab Royalty, as I like to call him. I know he doesn't like being called that. <laughs> I love how the... You? the, fr- the fr- on your soon. Uh, so I got Mr. Markovic. Uh, he decided that it'd be more convenient to fly to Vegas rather than play... Calling in Sydney, and then he just didn't want to play with me. Yeah, and then Sean Yang. Um, yeah, we're excited. Um, very solid team. Hopefully, can finally pick up a dub. I, I feel very confident about winning winning this calling because, um, <clears throat> you know, for once, Sasha can't knock me out of a calling. Um, he can he can gift me gift me the trophy this time. But anyway, well, episode sixty of Arsenal Pass. Welcome back, everybody. Today we're going to be diving deep. Just on flesh and blood game design, sort of the current state of the format, the future, uh, scalability, just diving into the game, how it works, and sort of where we've where we've been in the past and kind of where we are now in terms of how the game is actually playing out, the meta, but ultimately cr- trying to sort of pinpoint on design, right? You know, how is the design of flesh and blood? At- you know, evolved from Welcome to Wraith to where we are in Everfest. Because I think the game has cha- changed quite significantly. And then sort of extrapolate that t- towards the future, right? What do we see as the future of Flesh and Blood? Um, and yeah, just competitive play past that. But anyway, Hayden, I'm, go ahead. I was just saying, I'm a bit of a passenger on this one. Uh, Brennan's, I think this is a topic you've wanted to cover for a while. And we've, we've got someone joining us for the actual main part of the uh, show, don't we? Yep, it's going to be, well, speaking of the doctor, it's doctor number two. It's going to be Tarek Patel. Um, Tarek Patel is joining us. The ju- medical doctor. <laughs> yeah, the medical doctor. In just a moment, actually. Um, but yeah, with this one, it's like, it's interesting because I think that, I was actually talking to Hayden about this before we before we decided to move forward with the pause. Like, we're looking to sort of have a discussion and not a debate. And obviously, there's a lot of nuance to that statement. But I think sort of the essence of it is that I know that I don't, I don't think Tarek does, and you probably don't either, have a solid opinion on sort of what the current state of the game actually is. I think there needs to be some sort of exploratory talk um, and just like a sharing of ideas to even really understand what we think. Because, you know, I have some ideas, but I think I have other ones at the same time that contradict. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, So I really need to flush flush it out more for myself. And I just really want to look towards the future because I think we're sort of at the apex right now. You know, we've had our first pro tour. We're a few sets in, two plus two supplemental sets. And we've seen a drastic change um, sort of in the the evolution of Flesh and Blood, the gameplay, uh, just how everything is playing out. And it's just wondering, like, what does the future look like and where does future design ta- uh, future design for the game actually take us? Yep. yep. For sure. But before we dive into that, let's go ahead and head into the news, Mr. Dale. Oh, see, I, I mucked you up a bit, didn't I? Because you were about to ask me how my week in Flesh and Blood was, and then I, I sidetracked you, I think. Classic, classic. How, I mean, what what has been your week, right? It's just been testing for this uh, this Sydney calling? Uh, I played a pro quest in the weekend, which mm, was, so was I, good I, fun. Yeah. Uh, decided to bust out the dash list, and the dash list did win the pro quest I was at, but I wasn't the one playing it. So uh, 
we we threw the the dash deck guide up on the Patreon last week. Uh, I think Friday Friday evening, and uh, one of our patrons who's local to me, he said he, he was like he woke up early and he saw that it was up and he already been playing some boost dash and he was like I'm just you know I'm gonna grab the list I'm gonna run it. Shout out to Valentine. Uh, he beat me in an eighty card mirror in round three I think, and then uh, he went on to win the the whole event. So shout out to Valentine. But no, it was a, it was a good a well run event here in Sydney. Uh, I like the local ProQuest. I think there's some stores that do a really good job of they've built our community up and now they're they're running some awesome events. So Road to Nationals next, which we're going to talk about, and yeah, just some blitz testing. I've I've been enjoying it. I've been enjoying this blitz format. I think there's a lot of viable choices for the callings coming up, and um, that makes me excited. Yeah, I don't. I wonder if we should crack that egg open. Maybe next week, right? I'm gonna get your thoughts about next week. Yeah, show. get your thoughts on <laughs> get your thoughts on Oldham specifically. I think that's like the big ideological divide in the flesh and blood sort of community right now when it comes to blitz. So for me, I played a I played a pro quest as well over here at Reaper Games. Um, I did lose in top eight, but yeah, I mean, it was a good event. There wasn't, there actually wasn't that many people. So usually those, those events would have 50 plus kind of at these pro quests. We had about 25. Um, I think it's for a few reasons, uh, actually the least of which being the meta, <laughs> but the most important one is the meta zoo tournament. The big meta zoo tournament was in Dallas on that weekend. Um, and a lot of people are going to try to spike that, you know, some people, successfully spiked it but you know we're banned for uh talking <laughs> saying some comments on twitter i mean it's not even yeah i know whole it's yeah just a ridiculous just a ridiculous tournament but yeah a lot of people were over there um the pro quest was fun i played chain um and yeah there actually there was hardly i didn't play any starva myself but there was hardly any starva at the tournament there was like two players on it um we particularly had a bolton sabers just tearing up the field you know my favorite part about there being one Bolton Sabres at a pro quest is like every time in between rounds, you know, maybe you're going to, you're taking your bathroom break, you're walking outside, you just hear the grumble grumbles of who got, who got triple limited last round. <laughs> um, but yeah, heading down to uh, Oklahoma this upcoming weekend to go steal Zach Bunn's trophies uh, from, from the, from his cold dead hands when I, when I beat him in the finals. Um, and we're going to be playing a, another pro quest. So a double header, another one at Edmund unplugged, <clears throat> which is, a bit closer to me, also in Oklahoma, but just an awesome store. It's one of those stores that is also sort of like a lounge and a bar. <laughs> it's like, it's one of the nicest stores, honestly. I, I think it actually is the nicest store I've ever seen up until now. So always fun to drive up there and play um, play their ProQuest. Very good. Sweet. Well, now it's time for the news, sir. Yeah, I'm going to rip straight into it. We've got, uh, as we say, Dr. Patel joining us very soon. So Road to Nationals uh is it's funny whenever we have these like semi announcements for flesh and blood because we get the retailer announcements before we get the official player announcements i, I think it's something that alexis needs to look at because we get these not announcements but then everyone kind of knows about it even though it's not on you you go to the web page you have to dig for it by looking at the retailer um announcements so anyway we have the road to nationals coming up it's going to be uh oh let's see i've marked this up now we talked about the dates last week i think it's is it june 12th to the 2nd of july it's basically two weeks after uprising releases and um then into the the second don't worry i've got it here don't worry about that i found it brendan it's july 2nd to july 24th don't worry about june july 2nd <laughs> july 24th so it is two weeks after uprising releases um and we're getting draft as a format for Road to Nationals, which is super cool. I'm super excited for this. Um, so it's going to be draft and class constructed. The way the draft works is based on the number of players. You're going to play either one or two, mostly two pods of draft, unless you have a very small player base. Two drafts a pod, and then it's going to be basically Swiss in that. So draft your first pod, three rounds of Swiss, 
draft your second pod three rounds of Swiss. You can have six rounds of Swiss in total, and there's going to be a cut to top eight uh, for another draft, which is super, super awesome. You get uh, Dromai, Fi, Islander, um, Cold Foils available for top eight, and a few other different prizes and stuff. And then, of course, top four qualify for Nationals, which I'm sure we're going to find out about soon. But because this is July, I think we're going to be back on for like September Nationals, maybe early October, and then Worlds, Brennan. Surely Worlds is coming in November, maybe early December. So very excited about that. Road to Nationals coming up. I'm excited to learn how else you can qualify for Nationals. I assume we're going to see XP qualifications for Nationals specifically, um, but we'll, we'll wait and see. Draft week is two good. of ProQuest. Yeah, what's that? I said draft, draft is good. Uh, yeah, I also heard that news last weekend, and I couldn't be more excited. <laughs> like, I think that... It's cool. Yeah, the back-to-back CC into, like, Road to Nationals and the ProQuest kind of burns me out of the formats pretty quickly, but I'm very happy that they're now expanding into Limited as a as a format for these Road to Nationals, and maybe in the future we'll see it at ProQuest. They keep things yep. fresh. Draft is a very, very uh, fun and interesting format, um, especially over a long period of time. They will. I mean, that was the, the point of the skirmish drafts season, right, was to get that in and understand how they could make it work, and I, I think they've, they've successfully done it, so... Super excited to see that now that's going to roll out to um, competitive events, not professional events just yet, but we'll we'll see how that goes down the line. I think, you know, obviously at professional events like a Pro Tour, you can you can have draft pretty easily. We've seen that in other games. So, yeah, interested to see what comes of that. Week 2 of ProQuest, uh, there's a recap up on LSS website on fabtcg.com. The, the stats seem to be lagging a little bit behind in terms of, like, the events. I think we got the stats, like, literally the day of or Saturday of the ProQuest uh, Week 3. So... We're lagging a little bit behind, but it's interesting to see just the kind of the evolution of this meta from Pro Tour to ProQuest Week 1 to ProQuest Week 2, and then anecdotally last week with ProQuest Week 3. But we do have the data from ProQuest Week 2, uh, in which we saw, you know, it's like a really even split between Chain, Starvo, and Prism around the world, which is really interesting just in terms of what's being represented. And a lot of Lexi, like Lexi is the fourth most played deck, and that's just continuing to build. So uh, really interesting to see the meta develop. In terms of like the winner's meta, uh, it's also pretty evenly split between... Well, Chain and Bravo, uh, star of the show. Chain's about 30%, Bravo's about 33%. Uh, Prism not quite converting as, as high as... Uh, but it's, it's converting about the same as people playing it, right? It's about 16% of the wind share as well. So just some of these other decks like Lexi and um, you know things that are getting some representation and the meta aren't getting the, the wind share, unfortunately. But yeah, really interesting. You can go check that out. It's up on fabtcg.com and uh, see what's happening with week two. I'm sure we'll get week three stats soon. And we're coming to the last week of ProQuest this weekend. You've got a double header, Brennan. I've also got a double header. Think I'm going to go to both. I'm also trying to have a bit of a bit of downtime during this ProQuest season because it's just going to ramp straight back up again, isn't it? So um, we'll, we'll see what happens. Classic Battles is out. Uh, we talked about this last week. We've now seen all the cards in this. I think it's a really good balance of a few cards for Blitz. If you are looking to pick these up, just, you know, you want some of like the, there's the, the foil heroes. There's also some new cards. Is it Glistening Steel Blade? Is that what the new card's called? That card's pretty, pretty strong, Brendan. Yeah, it is pretty strong. Um, honestly, uh, so the... I didn't see anything particularly interesting in Brute. I could be missing one card, maybe. Um, but Warrior has, has some tools, right? Like the new, even the new Dawnblade is particularly interesting, the new hero. Um, but yeah, that specialization is powerful. The thing is, yeah, so that specialization actually made me want to take another look at Warrior. But then I'm like, okay, so it's very, it, it's nice to have persistent counters on your weapon. Like, obviously, that's very powerful. But like, what does this actually let you do? It's like, it, kind of is a card that lets lets you go long and it's like if the blitz format is still a two to three turn format which i'm sure we're going to break down next week in preparation for these team blitz events um is that where you want to be but obviously a very very powerful uh specialization that Dorentia got so that's exciting um i had a chance to actually play this uh 
play the, these box battles and yeah it's oh, fun yes you've got an opinion on this right because i need to i've i've got a box that i need to go pick up and then i need to solve the uh conundrum because you and sasha are at odds about which deck you think is quite significantly the better of the two in the box right yeah so i think it's dorinthia favored not even close and sasha is just a diehard brute i just uh i'm kidding it's, t- it's totally Am I gonna lean it's totally it's totally the other way around actually i'm just trying to tilt sasha if you ever listen to this but um yeah i'm actually i'm actually not too sure what's favorite the, the rhino or the sorry yeah the rhino deck is quite powerful um but you just need kind of a few cards but yeah if you get the intimidates like you get the barraging beatdowns with the alpha rampage or even it doesn't have to be it's not even a setup right you just draw sort of a triple or quad intimidate it ends the game pretty quickly just like brute wooden and normal blitz but that dorinthia deck is is pretty powerful we do see the new bobble which is exciting that's cool yep yep and then some of these like generic defense reactions some some cool stuff in there so yeah i did get a a pm actually about your brute play on on the arsenal pass stream with sasha the other day so you know apparently you're you're trying to tank the stock of brutes which is it's not you know that's just rude (laughs) i think that yeah so we played on stream and I think I had a million technical difficulties. Ridiculous. I was looking at three screens and like Sasha's microphone had like a, a level five tornado in the background. I'm just like, oh, dude, I just could not play. It was ridiculous. But <clears throat> Brute is definitely okay. powerful. Yeah. Yeah. No, but I think a good balance between a great entry level product, as we said last week, and um, some cards for, for Blitz, even Class Constructed. Like you can play Glistening Steel Blade and Class Constructed, right? So, mm-hmm. you know. It's a anyway. little bit expensive, though. I have to put that in there. It's a little bit expensive. I agree. Yeah, because <laughs> I know that I was gonna say. people are going to come in. They're going to be like, you didn't talk about Yeah, okay. It's a little bit expensive. I'm there with you. But, uh, you know, we can, take, we can take one, you know, baby steps forward. But, yeah, it's it's pretty pricey. I think it was like 50 bucks for me. Um, but, uh, yeah, other than that, cool product. I like the idea of dual decks. Dual decks is actually how I got into Magic the Gathering. Um, so I think it's a great product. Got a lot of people in, yeah. And if you do want to check out some gameplay with these new uh, battles, I keep calling them battle decks, classic battle decks, then uh, Fabrica are actually doing, if everyone knows Fabrica, uh, do amazing quality gameplay in terms of their production values are amazing. Um, and they're doing a series with LSS up on fabtcg.com in celebration of this launch of the classic battle. So you can go and watch their gameplays. I think there's two matches up right now. And uh, they're actually running some of these decks into like baseline um entry-level blitz decks of other heroes i think there's like a levia match uh last week so be sure to go and check that out uprising world premiere is next weekend brendan i can't believe it's already here we're going to be playing a calling we're going to be playing a world premiere on friday i didn't get the chance to do this in vegas i wasn't in vegas but so this is going to be my first world premiere of a set super excited for it really pumped you're of course going to be in vegas i'm going to be in sydney uh come say hello really looking forward to yeah just jamming games and um both both the the premiere is really exciting but also a team event is really exciting. So I feel like I'm just going to have an amazing weekend results aside, probably <laughs> not the old um, uh, O2 drop. Um, yes, yeah, so we got, we got double header deck techs. Hayden, you did a dash deck tech, which is already up on YouTube in the Patreon. <clears throat> I recently recorded a deck tech with Tyler Horsepool. So we have his prism deck coming up on a YouTube video and he's been kind enough to write a additional piece, an article with a sideboard guide, some tips and tricks. It's going to be going up on Patreon if you want to dig a little bit deeper, but his list, how to play it. Um, and just like his general sort of, I guess, beginner tips on how to pick up the deck and be successful. That is going to be in the YouTube video. So definitely check that out. 
get into the mind of a master, a man who's taken Prism to reasonable success. Obviously, winning Vegas was pretty good success, and then he was didn't he was doing very well on day one of the uh, the Pro Tour. I think that he's taken like what I was gonna say. He's taken Prism to success in formats where, you know, I might not I might not have had as much faith. But, uh, yeah, we're Brendan disagrees. Yeah, <laughs> we're Ty- so Tyler Horsbull has consistently proven me wrong. Um, so yeah, check it out. You get to I don't know pick up the see the deck from from his eyes, which uh, obviously is much more effective than mine. <laughs> I I heard he's changing his Twitter bio to you know Las Vegas calling champion Brendan is wrong. That's what I that's what I heard. So. Well, that would be definitely on brand with his uh, his winning interview. <laughs> if you remember, uh, I do. I do. It's great. All right, Hayden. Um, let's go back from a bike ride. It's about a hundred degrees out here, so we don't even need a grill. We can just throw this, throw this eggy on the concrete, concrete, cook it up. But uh, why don't you take me in that CNC section, buddy? Yeah, come on, the cookout question this week is um, great question. If you want to get your question in, you can submit them to us via email arsenalpassfab at gmail.com. In the YouTube comments, let us know it's command the cookout question. You can uh, DM us on Twitter. You can tweet at us. Or if you're in our community Discord, our patrons Discord, you can uh, also drop the question in our command the cookout channel, which is where we take this question from. We get a lot of great questions. This comes from Thalvix. People win the Discord names. I, I don't know. Some of these are like inside jokes or like, you know, references to when they were 10 years old. And, and I just, I just, you know, hopefully this isn't their name. Yeah. Uh, what if this is his first and last name? He's like, wow, that's offensive. Yeah. I'm sorry. Then I profusely apologize. Uh, given the reach of people like yourselves and Tarek Patel, do you think it's fair to recommend that people do, don't play a certain deck for the PT and then play something that benefits from that advice? So great question. And look, I wanted to answer this question. I, I wasn't sure if Tarek was going to be joining us for this question. <clears throat> but the first thing I want to say is this question has come about for a very particular reason. And also, I just think this is important to address because this is something that me and Brendan have been talking about uh, probably for like basically the whole life of Arsenal Pass. Um, and just want to say, first of all, before I get you to answer the question, Brendan, that I never think that Tarek ever had uh, bad intentions with the, the brick brack chain list. I think he genuinely thinks chain is the best deck in the format or, you know, the best choice for the PT at least. Um, but in saying that a week before the PT, it's a long time in testing before the PT. So it's uh, it's a very, a very delicate balance. But anyway, Brendan, I'm going to pass to you to answer the question. I love that I get to answer this question. <clears throat> um, well, I can start if you want. Yeah, it's a it's an interesting it's an interesting dilemma, right? So, do I think that uh, people who have influence, whether they be channels or individuals, should put people encourage the community to play decks that uh, are actively bad into decks that they're bringing? Uh, well, no, that's probably not the most ethical thing to do. That being said, it's it's it it happens and i think that most of the times it's not going to be intentional so <clears throat> i know the, the thing is is like Tarek got a lot of flack for this because knickknack brick brack chain and then he played starvo like like whatever i think that you could have accused me of the same thing to an extent because I, I talked a lot of trash about prism but prism ended up being good into the format it it, it was actually very good into my deck so you could say oh, Brennan trash-talked Prism because he was planning on playing Kano, which is absolutely not the case, right? <clears throat> These things can just happen by accident. We were actually accused of it a long time ago. We received a lot of flack. And I know that we've sort of tailored, we've kind of tailored our language and changed the way that we approach sort of recommendations for decks, the meta, and things like that due to that, due to the way that information can be received. Um, so I think that while it's not always on purpose, as a content creator, you have to be very cognizant of the the possibility of this and sort of 
I don't know, be careful with uh, sort of how you go about it. But I think that there's responsibility on both ends, right? Like part of the time, you know, part of the time, the content creator will be the fault. But part of the time, I think that the community goes a little bit too hard because it can just be an honest mistake. Um, and you can genuinely believe something. And with in one week of testing, especially if you're in in-person testing, let's say you're doing it like, I don't know, eight, 10 hours a day. Uh, I think your entire understanding of the game can change in that time. It's pretty incredible. All changes. Yeah. How All much? Changes. Yeah. I mean, I, I can even speak from our internal testing. Like we were on chain until like the 11th hour. Um, and we, we've flip flopped and reinvented the wheel probably five times in the, you know, seven days leading up to that tournament. It's just, that's just kind of how it goes. Right. And we ended up on this deck Kano and we didn't talk about Kano. Right. Because it was genuinely not that good <laughs> in our tournament, in our in our testing. We had it for the, the Viscerai format. It was performing okay, and it was struggling into like literally everything that wasn't Viscerai. Um, and it wasn't until we made a few card changes and sort of really honed in on like what we were trying to do with the deck that it was actually starting to see a, a decent performance. But um, yeah, I think that that's kind of my answer is that there's responsibility on both ends, but mainly as a content creator, you have to be sort of cognizant of the impact that your wards can have yeah I, I think we have like a whether it be us whether it be any any channel out there to be honest whether they're purely competitive focused or not or content creators purely focused or not anything you say is going to be analyzed and is going to be taken in and i mean that's kind of that's part of the reason that you're having the i guess the stool to stand on in the first place is because people respect and want to hear what you have to say so I think it's part of our responsibility, as Brendan says, as, as players, as creators, players who create content, to speak about the things that we truly believe in, and that's what we that's what we do on a week to week basis. You know, going into the PT, I thought Chain was the best choice of the sort of the decks available. Uh, I wouldn't have recommended anyone to play Dash. I talked about Dash a little bit. I wasn't going to share a list. I wasn't going to recommend anyone to play it because I I I genuinely don't think, in good conscience, I could. People would uh, be pretty upset about that. I think, <laughs> to, to be fair, because I don't think necessarily. It was a great choice, but it was a personal choice that I was pretty close to making. So there's there's like things where, yeah, as you say, Brendan, you have to be really careful. And uh, like you say, we've talked about like language we use and stuff. But at the same time, we want to make sure that we share the thoughts that we have and, and be open about those. You know, we there might be very specific things that we, we don't go into because uh, we have, you know, a, a group of players and testing who have come up with things. And that's not, and, and all honesty, that's not ours to share, but we do have very you know firm opinions on things and things we find out through testing and those are the things that we're going to continue to share and talk about um and i think things like these happen and you know for instance for Tarek, i'm sure he'll take a, a learning away for that um i think we all take a learning away from that for sure so yeah it doesn't it doesn't deter anything i don't think which is good as well because i think like you say responsibility on both sides right like i think Tarek does a great service for the game he talked about in pro quest season the decks he was going to play he talked about the format um you know he writes a lot of, of content for the game does a lot of good for the game so I think it's important to understand that. Yeah, I think that one thing that we learned um, after we sort of went through that that process was uh, managing expectations. I think we make it very clear in our content that if you're trying to win a pro tour, this is not the content for you. Like we're not going to give you the best deck that can win the pro tour with little to no effort. One, because it doesn't exist. And two, if we had it, we would go win the Pro Tour. Um, like Arsenal Pass is sort of predicated on us being competitive players. And that doesn't mean that we hide everything or that we're sharking. Or it, But when it comes to a Pro Tour or World Championships, it's not even me and Hayden who don't want to give you the information, right? It's like we have a responsibility to our team and the people that we test with not to come on here on our podcast and just give out, you know, 
private information that maybe we didn't even discover. So like, I think that we make it very clear that that is not our intention. You know, we're not trying to give out a deck that you can just pick up and go win a PT with. Um, and there's a lot of things that limit us and, and make us sort of take that approach. But I think it's really effective, right? Um, and I think that just being clear about it, being upfront um, is probably the best way to manage it because mistakes are going to happen, right? Yeah. I'm going to say Prism sucks, but Prism just happens to dunk on Kano, right? Like, I won't be saying it sucks. <laughs> I, I think there's an even bigger responsibility that we have, and that's something that we, we are always committed to, and that's that we will never mislead. Like, we, we're never out here to actively mislead people. It's just us as people, we're never going to do that, but also it's not something that we ever want to do. So we are very careful about things we do and do not say because we could very well know that we're going to be testing certain matchups in a week, and if we talk about a certain deck, uh, we could have a very different opinion in two days' time. So we might not talk about that because we just we just don't know, right? And we don't want to mislead people and and say X Y Z. Uh, sometimes we'll also get things wrong, yeah. <laughs> which you know lot, we're, we're going to do. Honest. We're going to be wrong about things like prison, for instance, or like certain things where we might not think something is good. It's not performing in our testing, and we'll be very open and honest about that. Uh, but other people could prove us wrong. Other people will find different things, test different ways, find different card combinations, which is all part of the game of flesh and blood. So. Anyway, I just thought this was a great question. I thought it was a great time to address it because I know it's something that continues to come up in the community, not just for ourselves, not just for Tarek, but for for others as well. And as this community grows, it's something that's come up in magic content for ages. It's something that's come up in you know pro gaming content for, for a very long time. Um, but I think we have an amazing community. And I think for the most part, people really understand that uh, we're being very open, open and honest about the things that we, we know and our opinions and uh, in very, very certain terms, never trying to mislead people. And, and neither do I think uh, has Tarek. Yeah, but on a lighter side, the knickknack brickback meme is freaking hilarious. So I, I saw I saw on Twitter yesterday, Tarek was like uh, testing. He's like testing data on Blitz, and he did like the eye emoji, and someone was like, "All right, calm down, knickknack brickback." <laughs> oh god, it was such a good reply. Uh, I think it was Tyler Horsepool who actually wrote that. <laughs> Brilliant, love it, love it, love it. All right, All right Brendan, we're to next. Well, I have to introduce you. Where are we going to next? Are we going to be bringing a doctor on the show? Yep, you got to go pick up the doctor. Um, go pick him up uh, after work, and yeah, let's go. Let's go grab Tarek and dive into this this main topic of the pod, which is flesh and blood set design and sort of the future. All right, welcome back, the doctor, Mister Tarek Patel. Uh, you mentioned you just came off the golf course. You want to sort of recount that story in your professional golf career? Uh, nothing really to tell. I just had a good time. You know, golfing is kind of my relaxation method, and I was just out there playing. Uh, shot of 78 so it was a good day and and i played well and and now we're back home to talk about flesh and blood so i'm ready if you guys are absolutely well we're happy to have mr nick knack of brickabrack himself on the podcast <laughs> we actually had a command and cookout question sort of in that in that in that light which i think you'll you'll enjoy the answer to we uh we sort of had a similar kind of a similar running in back in the early days of arsenal pass and um yeah i don't know it's it, it's interesting and i saw i remember your post on twitter yesterday about data doll and that comment i think it was from tyler horsepool actually made me laugh out loud in public it was it made me fun. laugh too <laughs> All right. But anyway, um, yeah, so we're going to be talking about flesh and blood game design in the future. So Tarek, do you want to, you mentioned you had a lot of thoughts, you had a lot of notes on this. Do you kind of want to open it up with sort of what is your, what is your understanding of the current state of flesh and blood? And just a quick thought on like scalability, sort of the foundation of the game's design and where we're heading in the future. I know it's a big question, but I wanted you to just kind of give your primer for that topic. 
Sure. So let's start with uh, first principles and where kind of flesh and blood is on a turn by turn basis and then what decks can do from there. So when I look at a game of flesh and blood, it is defined by the rules where every player must drop to four cards every turn and you have one arsenal slot. So when breaking down decks, you know, five cards is really the maximum that either player really has to work with on, on at the start of each given turn cycle. So when I look at it, you know, I look at cards and, and decks in, in a way that, you know, an Oldham deck or a Guardian deck in general can block three times five uh, worth of points maximum every turn. So 15 damage. And on the other side of it, you know, I value every attacking card as a base average of about 3.5 to 4. So every deck that attacks, every card that they can possibly put out is about, you know, 4 times 4, 4 times 5 is 20 damage uh, a turn. And then I start breaking it down from there. So I apologize for my dog. She is easily excited. But so when asking the question, you know, is flesh and blood fully flushed out? I like to start with the basics of what every deck can potentially do every turn and uh, where they're going in terms of offensive versus defensive values and then going from there. How do you think we end it? So I would I would argue that since Monarch, we sort of exist in this hyper-polarized format of very aggressive decks, and usually in that case, a premier singular aggressive deck, aka what everybody considers to be the best deck, also polarized by a hyper-defensive deck in the format. So in Monarch, we saw this with Chain and then Fatigue. Fatigue came in a few different flavors, right? But mostly in the form of Prism. Um, as we move forward from there, we do still have chain but now we're looking at uh you know we're looking at things like briar versus Oldham. um that was sort of a good example of that starvo kind of broke that broke that open right it, it did but i would put starvo into the bucket of an aggressive deck i know michael's deck in particular was a, a different take on that but sort of also a polarized meta where it was very much starvo and prism and of course we ran into the pt where we still now we have with awakening band we have sort of this hyper aggressive deck or these two premier we actually had a duality of premier hyper aggressive decks i think in the in the form of both chain and uh bravo star of the show we did see fatigue show up we did see hyper defensive decks show up but not as much as usual uh and of course prism came back prism came back to prey on starvo and to actually go back to its monarch roots with fatiguing chain for the most part so <clears throat> tell me how we got to that place these metas they felt very you know you're on this side of the aisle or on that side of the aisle and i think somewhere along the line it does feel like mid-range died can you just kind of analyze that for me yeah and and i agree with what you're saying you know in general, with, with how many cards and how many heroes are available in Flesh and Blood, you would think there'd be more of a spectrum. But I think due to, you know, the, the the polarization I think we're seeing is because of decks utilizing the five-card hands as optimally as possible. So in, in a sense, you know, if a deck like Briar that has almost all the action points it could ever want with Go Again can output its maximum output, which is four times five or 20 damage a turn, why would you ever play a game of somewhere in the middle and i think you know i'm not saying that's the case but i'm saying when you're looking at decks to play why wouldn't you tend towards the extremes and in my opinion when i'm looking at things like this i'm looking at decks like like guardian old him specifically and then decks like chain and briar on the other end that are just really good at their extreme aspects and it's kind of asking the very tough question for every other deck in the format of you know what what are you doing better than the extremes and, you know, there are certain decks out there like Prism that have the 
option of carrying damage throughout turn cycles in the form of permanents like uh, illusionist auras mm-hmm. or uh, spectra shields and so forth. And there's other heroes like Dash that can also do that through mechanologist items. But for a large subset of other heroes, like let's say, uh, you know, Hayden's beloved Levia or Reinar, you know, that just isn't the case. You know, if, you know, their damage output is less than than let's say Briar was last format or Chain is this format, but they're also subsequently worse at blocking. They have the very tough question of answering, you know, to a competitive player, you know, why should I be the one taken to an event over, you know, the extremes? Mm-hmm. There's this idea of of mid range, right? And I think the one of the problems I have with talking about mid range and flesh and blood is it's it's not the same as in other games. Like I don't think mid range really exists in this game. And you could say that maybe it did in, in previous formats like Welcome to Wraith. And you talked about Dash just there, obviously the premier deck through Arcane Rising and even to Crucible. I think literally if you talk about what mid-range in this, is in this game is, to me it means a deck that more so plays on the board. So I think Prism personally is a, is a mid-range deck. That's what, if I don't think, mid, basically I don't think mid-range exists, but if I was to try and attribute something close to it, it would be something that does something on the board and can play in both worlds, which is like a Prism to me, it is a deck that can play maybe Channel Lake Frigids, these things that can be somewhat disruptive, dash with items. I think this is where it plays. And I think often these decks need to flex between being aggressive or being defensive. That's kind of the mm. the job they have to try and do to be competitive. And that's that's really tough. That's where I think it makes it even harder. But I don't, I don't think that really we're ever going to see a true mid-range like you see in Magic the Gathering or in other games. I think it's going to look something different because the, the, basically the thing you say, Tarek, which is the rule of fours, which is really important in this game, and the idea that you need to break the, the maximum of a five-card hand. And the reason you would play a deck that does that, say like a, a Prism or a Reinar as a good example, Reinar has like a, a turn, right? You have Blood Rush Ballads. You have a turn that can break a five-card hand and can break a damage threshold. But there's a three cards in the deck that can do it and it requires certain other things around it, right? So my my thing would be to go outside of that, you have to break some of the tenets of the game and that starts to become dangerous. So it's really hard for, I think, the game design to find a, a spot where it makes sense to do it. And I think that's kind of the... Honestly, I think that's the dilemma that LSS are in is how do you do it while not breaking the game? Yeah. I want to take a, <clears throat> I want to take a small detour just to quickly talk about armor and this concept of bridge. How do you think that that has impacted some of the premier heroes in Flesh and Blood? It feels like some of the better heroes in the game or the, the, the more consistently performing do have access to a large amount of armor, right? Allowing them to block, you know, critical on hit trigger, things like command and conquer, things that threaten disruption with, you know, permanent things on the board and not actually taking a card out of their hand, allowing them either attack back, you know, obviously in Old Tim's case, you know, maybe they're actually opting for a more defensive overall. But particularly in the aggro decks, it does seem like access to a high amount of armor or a quote-unquote fridge seems imperative to actually being competitive. Do you agree with this? A hundred percent. And I think that is probably the area that LSS has room to explore the most for buffing or even nerfing, you know, other heroes. Because, for example, if you walk over to a game of Flesh and Blood and you did not know what happened the turn cycle prior... The only thing that you could get from the game by looking at it is A, the life total, and B, the state of the armor, right? And that's why when when I, you know, try and help my friends that are coming over from Magic to play Flesh and Blood, and they just had, you know, your or their opponent just had a really good turn against them, or they had a really bad turn, I can almost tell them, like, pretend you have amnesia and you didn't know what happened the turn before. You're really only down four life points or, you know a counter on on this piece of armor and if you look at the game with almost like amnesia every turn the permanence of the game 
is only really reflected in your life total and armor. And the fact that some heroes and some, you know, classes have way better armor, you know, Runeblade having grasp is just absolutely, you know, crazy where, where dash, for example, still doesn't have a, a playable, uh, arm piece is, is just an absolute, uh, you know, crucial difference when you're, when you're picking decks, because you can build a very, very good aggro dash deck. Um, but it's lacking that, you know, critical arm piece and maybe if it had a grasp of the arc knight equivalent in dash and didn't have to run uh you know the generics uh it would see more play so i think it's it's extremely important to have you know good armor and it's a an area that lss needs to explore a little bit more it's the most interesting part to me to be honest because it's the it's the part that always like you say always starts on the board it's that but it's also a place where you can have single use things that only can happen once in the game you know you Mm -hmm. take Blood Sea Scalata, you take Courage of Blade Hole, you take these cards that have one-time effects, right? To me, those are some of the most interesting things in the game because, yes, they start on the board and they're a powerful effect, but they do have a limit to them. And that's like really interesting design space to me, just outside of even what what defending and, and what, um, you know, basically defensive armor you have. Uh, this idea of activated abilities or triggered abilities, the ones that cause me concern are cards like Crown of Seeds, uh, cards <laughs> like Rampart of the Ramshead, where they have this repetitive effect that I think um, can warp basically how the game's played and, and effectively lead towards being able to break tenants of the game, which does cause me some issues. Like I, I think Crown of Seeds personally is a bit is a bigger problem than a card like Bloodsheath Scalata for the long term of the game. Um, so that's an interesting part of the design space. I think they both both uh, really interesting to explore, but also really need to understand and be careful of. Mm-hmm. So modern day flesh and blood and modern day card design, uh, new sets. Let's particularly look at Everfest. What actually makes the cut? You know, looking at Everfest, we saw some winners and some losers, right? We actually saw a lot of game design space not get utilized, particularly in the potion slot. So what does it take to be kind of a good enough card out of some of these supplemental sets? Does it just have to have that rune blade keyword on it and somehow slot into these already extremely powerful decks like Viscerai was or Chain or Briar or, you know, Illusionist, Guardian, things like that? Because um, I think in Everfest we saw some we saw some really interesting takes on some cards like Revel and Runeblood. That is a very different card from what we're used to, and its its power level in Viscerai was ridiculous. Um, Swarming Gloomvale, sort of the same thing. Miraging Metamorph, this almost delete seven life from your opponent um kind of card what a, like what does it take to be at the highest level be at the highest competitive level be relevant and sort of actually change that class's ability to be viable in a competitive format so i'm, I'm going to give you an opinion here and it's going to be a take that might be a little bit of a hot take or one that others may have not you know realized before or may disagree strongly with but I think in flesh and blood, the cards by and large are extremely underpowered. And I think that's by intention design, but I think by and large, everything in every class is relatively underpowered. And we see that with potions, right? When I saw the first kind of couple of potions come forward, I was kind of like, eh, but I'm like excited because time snap potion is phenomenal. Energy potions are phenomenal. The ability to bring action points, resources, or damage through turn cycles and not be constricted to one turn cycle is absolutely imperative to, you know, for XYZ strategies. And I'm like, okay, great. Here's another way to do it. That's more generic in potions and for any other class, but they were all very, you know, tempered down. And we see that with LSS's design with all the card draw mechanics. You think of cash out, cash in, you know, everything is slightly overpriced for the amount of cards you would draw. And there's no way to break it in a way to like draw your whole deck or get, you know, a larger, you know, a greater sum than than the parts. 
And I think that's intentionally by design. So when we're looking at cards that are, are overpowered or stand out, I think it's a very low barrier. The cards like like uh, Revel and Runeblood you mentioned, for example, I think they're actually well-designed cards and they're actually perfectly fine, right? On face value, it is a zero uh, resource cost for four damage, which is, you know, it's, it's slightly above average, but it's a majestic level powered card. It's not like it's absurd in any way. It has the downside of being a red line card, meaning it's a horrible pitch card. And, you know, I think we see this, that, that chain players aren't even playing it right now mm-hmm. in up-to-date chain list. And it was specifically good in Viscerai because of its synergy with Viscerai's other abilities, Scalata and so forth. And that's why it really felt pushed in in, in that format when, when Viscerai was there. But I like to, to honestly sit down and look at Flesh and Blood and go, the cards that we think are too good are only too good relative to the format because other cards are so underwhelming. And that, you know, in actuality, if other decks just had other resources to compete with it they may not actually be overpowered or pushed mm. I, I massively agree with you Tarek like it's that's one of the biggest <clears throat> points of this game I think is that the only the only thing I would say maybe I like slightly disagree with is the the power level of certain cards only being synergistic and I, I actually think those come from earlier sets not from current sets but a card like Plunder Run uh, a card like Tomofi and Dell, like there's these cards that potentially could have uh, are just very strong because of what they do in terms of just what what the printing says on the card. Whereas I think with like Everfest, I don't really feel that about any card in particular, like Rivlin, Runeblood, Swimming Gloomvale. I agree with you. I think these cards are like really well designed and really well balanced. That where the strength comes from is like the synergy, like you say. Um, what I actually think we're going to see is like there's a lot of really powerful effects in the first two sets. Energy Potion is ridiculously powerful, I think. And time snap potion, like you say, I think these cards, these first two sets, are going to really permeate through the game for a long time, and they're going to have a really long tail. I don't think we're going to see. We're actually going to see. I think the inverse to other games where you see, like the earlier sets, really get power crept quite quickly, and and you know become less relevant apart from a handful of cards. I think you see the opposite. You know, you've got sink belows, fates for, for scenes. These zero for fours. These are not effects you're going to see through the game regularly. I think what Alice has had to do with the printing of the first two sets is really set a baseline for cards that. Uh, are really important for the the longevity of the game and especially for the the early parts of the game to have these effects that are sort of asymmetric in some ways a scar for a scar versus a sink below for instance a snatch versus a fate for scene whatever it is to be available in the game to allow players to deck build to design and to have these things and i think they're going to be there for the long term which raises a whole lot of other issues with printing and things like that but um i i that's how i kind of see it i I take what you're saying Tarek, and just think that those first two sets are so important for that reason and and maybe some of those are kind of the upper limit of of what we see and in theory we shouldn't get too much crazy power creep because of the core tenets of the game right because of the rule of four because of these things it's going to come from synergy and it's going to come from armor to be honest (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah so does rosetta thorn fall in that bucket so rosetta thorn a weapon that pretty much just negates every other rune blade weapon option out there right just almost strictly better in every single way has the sort of meme downside of uh you know you've had to play a non-attack action and so and so to actually get its ability but effectively a one for four that has arcane damage that is not rune blade typical right it's a source of two two physical as well Sometimes inconvenient to block if you're blocking with a block three. Um, does that? Do you think that Rosetta Thorn falls falls in that bucket that you mentioned, Tarek? Uh, I think Rosetta Thorn. I mean, it's hard to say. One resource for four damage split, you know, two ways with the restricted cost attached to it. I think in design theory, I think that's an appropriate, you know, costed thing, right? 
uh, one for four, no go again, has a restriction. Um, whether, you know, it restricts other weapons and people being upset or whether it's right or wrong, I think is a different area to talk about. I think in every kind of game, there will be a most optimal strategy and people will tend to gravitate towards that anyway. So even if Rosetta Thorn didn't exist, we'd probably having would be having this exact con conversation about maybe Nebula Blade or whatever other weapon was in its place. So the fact that it was Rosetta Thorn and not something else um, doesn't, you know, I don't read too much into it. And I think Rosetta Thorn is more or less okay, one resource for four damage. And I think a lot of the other hero weapons out there kind of provide similar rates. You know, we look at Dash's weapon when she, you know, fully powers up, it's like a one for four, one for six. Um, you know, Luminars has a, a great ability in of itself, and uh, it goes from there. But uh, yeah. The last those individual. The that... Sorry, go ahead. I was just gonna say, those are the cards that could, that can break it though, right? These ones that start on the board, they're the hardest. You can have design theory, but in the end, it might not matter. These are the ones that can. I'm... There's great design theory behind Crown of Seeds, right? Yeah, one, I was one, gonna say one. One more card I want to harp on is Crown of Seeds. This is Crown of Seeds. That that ability a bit atypical, a bit atypically powerful. Maybe not, you know, in the context of the upcoming set Uprising, right? Maybe we'll see more cards sort of on that level. But Crown of Seeds, not only powerful in and of itself, in a vacuum, whether it, its ability is allowing you to do, kind of recycle your arsenal into your hand, have multiple blocking cards, have resources floating for the arcane damage, maybe go off Tunak and play the five-card hand. But the synergy of Crown of Seeds, and then sort of the secondary ancillary effect of turbo stacking your deck, um... Quite good, right? And this additional ability to block arcane damage, very good against wizard with these multiplicative arcane effects. Crown of Seeds, how does that fit into the, the sort of the design space of Flush and Blood? Because I feel like it, it it's kind of outside, right? I feel like it's a bit atypical. I, I agree with what Hayden said earlier. I think, you know, and, and one, you know, a couple of weeks ago or months ago now, when we were talking about what cards would you ban to fix Starbo, Crown of Seeds was actually on my list because I first see that card being a problem you know, two, three, four sets down the line. And I, I agree with everything Hayden said before. And I think, Brandon, you hit the nail on the head too, right? It is a card that basically turns a four-card blocking hand, which used to be the maximum you could block with unless you had a defense reaction. It makes every card you put in an arsenal basically a defense reaction. Maybe like it's a yellow fate for scene or whatever, where it only blocks for three, but it basically turns your arsenal always into a blockable or, you know, useful card. Um, and, and I want to clarify earlier, you know, don't get me wrong. When I say I think cards are powerful relative to the weakness of other cards, there are sometimes still cards that will be too good for this game. I think Scalata was was a perfect example of that card, uh, of that uh, uh, idea that would restrict uh, future card design if they ever kind of presented another X-type spell because that cost reduction is always a way to, you know, any card that cheats an axiom, and one of the axioms being resources, has the potential to being too good. And, and you know, Crown of Seeds, just like you said, the cheating the way an arsenal is supposed to be used, right? The, the game's designed so that the arsenal is supposed to be used for attacks and, and de-reacts only. And Crown of Seeds kind of breaks that uh, dichotomy by allowing, you know, any generic card placed in it to actually turn into a blocker. And uh, so, yes, I do, I do agree with you that Crown of Seeds is probably too good in a vacuum, not even comparatively to the rest of, of Flesh and Blood. Going to get an opinion piece from you both. Tarek, I know this is going to be interesting, particularly because I know, Tarek, you came into the game a little bit later. Um, Hayden, obviously, you started back early, early days, Ira days, before, you know, sort of Welcome to Wraith, Ground Floor. Do you think that as you've 
as you came into the game initially and where you are now, has the game evolved in a objectively better way or has it maybe become less fun and is there less competitive integrity? Um, I'll let Hayden say first because he's been playing for a lot longer than I have and I, I have some opinions, so go ahead. Small question, small question. Um, there's a lot to break down there. So you're effectively asking, has the game evolved to be fun or has it evolved in a, in a good way? Like what's the... You can answer both questions, right? Is it more fun and is it more, yeah. is the competitive integrity lower or higher, right? Do you feel like the work you put in the practice is, you know, leads to more... I don't know, sure. sort of results, wins, you know, et cetera. Um, the Player answer is agency. yes and no. Yeah. <laughs> because I think, I think, like you say, you know, the work you put in, the integrity of the game from like a, a purely my, the ability I have to impact through pure play of the game. Yeah, the agency has lessened, I think. And I don't think there's many people that would argue with that from Welcome to Wraith to, to where we are now with Everfest. But do I think that's a bad thing? No, I don't think that's a bad thing. I think there's a, there's a limit to it. And I think there's a scale of, you know how far you should swing the pendulum on those things in terms of like how far you should take away how much i guess people talk about variance right that's the element people talk about how much variance you should add into things uh people, variance is something that came up a lot during this last one a lot heading into the pt was things like star of the show with with chain because you have these banishes on shackles you have star of the show activation you have these different things so i think that's something that's coming up more and more as a conversation piece i i think it's true but i also don't think it's bad for the game i actually think it's mostly a positive thing for the game there's negative aspects for sure but i think the fact that you have the ability to play a game and feel like oh i got a little bit unlucky or i got a little bit lucky is a good thing like if you want to go and play and people this is i guess a tired analogy now but if you want to go and play chess go and play chess right like i i think the, the good thing about flesh and blood as we go or any tcg yes reduced variance is good i love the fact that we don't have to worry about a mana base in, in flesh and blood to, to a degree you do have a resource base right and that is important but the fact i don't necessarily get and i know Tarek's gonna play on this because of like you can draw all quad red hands you can draw all blue hands etc but the the rate at which that happens comparative to the impact of a game state where you're building up in a game as opposed to playing hand to hand is very different i think so I think in terms of competitive integrity, I think it's pretty good. I, I think there's definitely elements and there's aspects that are, I would say on like on watch, I would say on notice about being really careful about and the game has definitely had more variants come into it. But overall, I, I think it's a positive thing for the game. But, uh, you know, you ask me in three months' time and my view might change. Uh, you know what's funny is the last time we talked, I think Hayden actually changed my mind on this. And I actually agree with Hayden now. I uh, actually really enjoyed the last format. So I'm going to be at LSS shill. And actually, I don't think the last two formats we played were the worst. I think, you know, for me, the game still evolved in a way that I've had fun and I've learned, you know, a ton of things uh, going into, you know, from the Briar format to the Viscerai format to the uh, what we had now at the PT format. You know, I, I've still learned a ton of stuff and I thought it was very fun and you know, I think it gets a lot more flack than it probably deserves. Was it perfect? No, I think everybody can can say, you know, the dominated Okanols were not the most fun play pattern to play with or against. But there was a lot to really go over, especially in, in the Starville Mirror match, right? There are a lot of matches over, you know, Pro Tour and the calling weekend for myself where, yeah, I just, just was just dead in the water to, you know, multiple activations in a row. But there were a lot more games where... I finally got to utilize that skill set of setting up a great second cycle. That something that I'd only heard about ever 
from you know boomer players like yourself and i never really got to experience like in the other formats so a lot of my games over the weekend actually came down to who set up like an earth ice lightning you know second cycle better than their opponent and when it got to that state i felt very comfortable uh playing the starvo matchups and you know there is some amount of variance with like like Tatum was saying with soul shackles and and Okanold reveals, but it goes both ways. And you know I've played worse formats in other games, and and this one didn't actually feel too bad. We had three completely viable decks. We had Kano, which y'all broke and, and brought to the PT. We had Lexi in Yuki's hand that was absolutely dominating certain decks over the week. Like I I thought it was just a really fun format through and through, and a lot of the games were very interesting. But it did have the negative play patterns, and as human beings. That's what we tend to latch on to, right? Humans are very loss adverse and, you know, they tend to pick up on the negative things. But I, I think the game has evolved in, in a way and I think it's still fun and interesting and I'm excited for, for what comes next. All right. So I want to talk about sort of silver bullet matchups and silver bullet cards. Um, is this actually healthy for flesh and blood? So right now we do have you know, classes like Prism, right? Prism who Prism against Guardians, like it's been sort of this silver bullet class right uh guardian just traditionally has like sort of a 90 10 just a particularly bad matchup because it's inability to gain action points to actually interact with what prism has on board to a lesser extent but it would be felt if uh you know kano was mass adopted kano also can't really interact with stack and it leads to sort of uh, an ish experience we've seen this also in briar versus old him um in the aggro briar press and maybe i guess chain versus mid-range but effectively matchups that take away player agency and we get closer to this format of a rock paper scissors format right and i think that um i heard about this this concept a lot back in like welcome to wraith and arcane rising was like oh this like this idyllic rock paper scissors format where you know everything has this this sort of this balance but I think that's actually the opposite of what Flesh and Blood is supposed to be. The idea of bringing a deck, right, that has... Your goal is to sort of gem format past one hero in order to stomp another hero and maybe edge out your mirrors through play skill. That's the opposite of what Flesh and Blood should be, in my opinion, right? Um, I could be wrong. This could be the future of Flesh and Blood. We've also seen this with cards, right? We've seen some cards that have... Some of these ones have been less effective, though, but some of the item destruction cards, particularly for Dash, we have Rampart of the Ram's Head. We have things like Steadfast for Arcane Damage. Just really silver bullet cards. But particularly, I want to focus on the matchups, right? Like, things like Prism, um, things like, you know, defensive old him into aggressive decks like Briar or potentially Chain. Is that the future of Flesh and Blood? Is it healthy? And is that a good game experience? Uh, Hayden, I'll let you go first because I know you guys had a little bit of a back and forth on your last week's episode. And yeah. I really enjoyed this topic. And I'll weigh in after because I had some uh, some points to make on both uh, you and Brendan. So go ahead. All right. I'll try and just quickly summarize, I guess, because we had a very similar question about, you know, a polarized matchups good for the game is effectively the question that came came out of it. Uh, and my my short answer was yes. Uh, to a degree, I think it is good for the game because I I don't actually think in this game, I think it's, first of all, I think it's good that we can reward players for being experts in heroes. I think that's good. But I also don't think the game should exclusively reward players for being experts in heroes. And I think there should be, at a, especially at a very top competitive level, incentives to be able to play more than one hero, to be able to play multiple classes. And so I think that having some of these polarized matchups you know like you say i mean i don't even agree brennan that necessarily garden guardian has this 10 90 matchup into prism i think we've just seen that with the star of the show meta you could say yeah star of the show is an outlier because of the power of that 
but even you can look at Alton and say, to be honest, you can you can build that to get it to probably a, a somewhere around a 40-60 matchup. And I think uh, if you ask someone like a, a Matt Rogers or maybe Tarek has something to say about it, uh, that that might be possible. So, But in general, I think these ideas that stock standard builds are good in certain formats and create polarized matchups to a degree. I actually think that's 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 good for the game. I think I want to see the ability to be able to still metagame an event. If we start to reward just the fact that every matchup becomes somewhere between like 40 to 60% quoting 40 to 60 percent somewhere around there uh when you say that both players are equally matched i don't think that's a very exciting format to be in where you can have 10 heroes i don't actually think that's good for the game long term and just um i think having things rotate in and uh, having heroes be good sometimes sometimes not be good uh is really exciting and causes people to learn new things and f discover and, and find this excitement through deck building through card discovery through new sets coming out so yeah i i actually think that those kind of things are good for the game all right, so I, I'm definitely more on camp or team Brendan here uh, in, in this particular, uh, you know, example or question. Um, I, I think polarized matchups are rough for the game overall. You know, if you go into a tournament and you have a rock, paper, scissors dynamic where it is a 90-10, 90-10, 90-10, I think it's a very unpleasant experience going into it than knowing that two-thirds of your games will be very hard to to win. And I think Flesh and Blood, especially given that it's a one game, uh, you know, one match game, I guess you should say, you, you only play one match to determine the winner of a round, um, means that each player starts with, you know, 40 life. And the way the game is designed with second cycle and the pitch stacking, et cetera, means that both players are more than likely to see their entire deck unless you're a hyper aggro deck or your opponent's a hyper aggro deck. And because of that, any good or bad repetitive play patterns that LSS has designed and implemented to the game will be seen throughout the game. So we can go backwards and, and talk about designing them, but you know, so far as it stands, you know, Hayden, you talk about Prism versus Old Tim. If there's a good repetitive play pattern, it is more than likely that Prism will see it. And it's more than likely that Olden will also have its bad draws throughout the game. And those effects kind of compound that lead to these kind of 90-10 matchups. In my perfect view, it's actually what Hayden doesn't want. I would love the rock, paper, scissors analogy to be that, you know, you have good matchups, but they're only 60%. Or you have bad matchups, and they're only 40%. And you can make, maybe make up that 20% uh, differential over the board itself. To me, that's a much more enjoyable experience, you know, knowing that two thirds of my matchups are 40 percenters or one third of my matchups, excuse me, are 40 percenters. But that I have some 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 say over to, you know, where that that 20 percent leverage comes in through sequencing, through pitch stacking, through second cycle, through sequencing my cards, whatever it may be. So for, for me, I think silver bullets, especially if you have, you know, silver bullets that are really good against the rest of the format and then just lose against xyz decks and then another silver bullet that's also really good against the rest of the format but then lose to xyz deck just like we had in this last format with the uh, chain starvo and prism it leads to a very you know oh my gosh i hope i don't play against prism or oh my gosh i hope i don't play against starvo experience that I, I think is not not you know conducive to an overall great tournament experience yeah and before Hayden brings up Kano, because I think he might. I think Kano is an outlier. I wasn't going to. Okay, yeah. I think Kano is definitely an outlier. Um, yeah, I don't want to dwell too much on this, but I'm going to ask you guys a funny one. Um, and I have a lot of thoughts on this on this particular topic, but I'm going to give you the basic question and just let it simmer. Is Living Legend the good system? 
Uh, I think it's an interesting system, and I'm willing to give it a try. Um, so in other games, you would have, you know, rotating rotating formats where, you know, new sets come in, old sets kind of come out, and it creates this shift in play. Uh, I think Living Legends interesting because it says that the hero itself and not necessarily its card pool may be the issue. Because, for example, if it's the chain cards that are really too good, if you just introduce another Shadow Rune Blade, will it just be the next Living Legend? Uh, is an interesting concept to kind of, you know, go through. And I think heroes and armor are concepts that, you know, other TCGs hasn't, you know, haven't uh, explored before. And I'm willing to give it a try. So I think Living Legend is interesting for now, but they will have to balance it with, you know, how fast heroes get Living Legend, what the appropriate rate is, how many, you know, when the next one will come out. Like Star Wars was released in February. We're now sitting here recording this in May and he's already banned. So uh, there's a lot of question marks about the Living Legend system, but I'm willing to give it a shot. Yeah, I think in theory, it's uh, I think in theory, it's a, it's a, great idea it's a, a great system in theory and practice uh well so far i've not been super impressed but i think we're about to see chain have have i guess what is maybe the idea of living legend uh, and albeit there's been you know bands that have impacted chain um but i think we're about to see kind of the first hero maybe viscerai to an extent but even that you know it was so polarizing i think the 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 issue with living legend is just currently the way that it's being uh, i guess basically the execution of it with yeah, the, the point system it feels like it, it really depends on how many events are in a, a season etc i don't think that should be the case i think they should look to move towards a percentage-based uh system for the season so that points are pretty consistent and the best heroes still gain the most amount of points but you know you can kind of have it in this kind of a bit more enclosed idea of how many points are any particular hero is going to get and a bit more paced out and in terms if they add x amount of events to a calendar then you know you don't immediately start to blow out the idea of living legend to four or five heroes a year having it so i think they need to try and work out how to pace it i know they've said that they feel pretty confident about it especially in something like blitz because they don't see necessarily more skirmish events being added uh but maybe a few here and there but they feel like they've got a pretty good base now uh, i don't know be interesting to see but i think in theory yeah it's it's a good system but in practice so far um i don't know I'll, I'll wait and see i'll give them as i say with Tarek, like a benefit of the doubt right until we see how it kind of goes but i think ellis needs to really um work on the system a bit yeah we've had a few iterations actually um we have but i won't go into the history i will say though that living legend as we know it today and it's specific current iteration will change it does not work um living legend operates so specifically with the numeric numbers and kind of how things are tallied up that's a static variable off of a dynamic player base right and then a player base that is generally going up um potentially if the if let's say in a situation i don't think it's likely the player base drastically goes down the system also breaks it breaks both ways so they will need to recalibrate it, whether that's percentage base or just sort of a rethinking of the entire system altogether. Living Legend will change. It does not actually work, in my opinion. Um, but I think that's going to be pretty close to fact as we see a compounding number of players actually enter Flesh and Blood, which I know we all hope is the future. Um, I do think that the system will change. I'm interested to see both Starro and Chain potentially get Living Legend and see how that actually impacts the game. Um, Tarek, I think I'll spare the audience my LaCroix metaphor for this one, but I feel like it's pretty accurate. But this could actually really shake things up, and I'm interested to see, because I feel like from Monarch to about now, things we've had the idea of things shaking up, we've had the intent, but I haven't really felt it. Um, speaking of that, Legendary Studios, since Monarch, I mean, specifically has had a heavy hand in the ban and restricted and even suspended list 
Do you think that this is a sign of a healthy game? Do you think it's appropriate? Have you been happy with the bans they've had so far? And do you see that as the future of how Flesh and Blood polices its card pool and its formats? Are we going to see active sort of participation from Big Brother, from Legendary Studios to ban cards and sort of keep our formats healthy? Yeah, so that that's that's a lot of questions in one. So I'm going to try to break it down and kind of answer it one on one. So is you know the ban having you know over the last year or so having all these bans a good or a bad thing? Uh, I have to say, you know, from a player's perspective, it's probably largely positive. You know, I think James White did an interview with I want to say Flake where he talks about it, or it might have been Red Zone Rogue, I might be confusing my interviews, but he talks about, you know, the play experience being the number one goal for him and LSS overall. And if there is a negative experience, yeah, it would rotate eventually through Living Legend, but why subject your players to that for X number of months leading up to that? So, you know, the fact that bans happened, I think is a good thing. You know, every game in existence, you know, trading card games has had, needed bans and that's because making cards is you know difficult i was almost going to swear there but uh you know it is a difficult thing to to make trading cards and sometimes you miss the mark and sometimes you miss the mark and things are better than you anticipate and there's nothing wrong with admitting you make a mistake you know some people will inevitably be frustrated and and lose monetary gains you know myself included i pulled a coal foil uh dust blade at my pre-release like my, my first event and i was over the moon and i actually uh uh sold it and then the band announcement came out and before i shipped it out i'm like yeah i can't i can't sell that to you so i i reneged on it and i saved uh, whoever bought it from me some money so and like those things happen right and that's why you try and design cards in a way that they hopefully don't get banned but i think you know banned and restricted announcements you know are just a part of the game and you know i don't fault them for playing around with design states you know, space and, and this stuff will uh, inevitably happen. Um, remind me, what was the second part of the question now? Because there was there was a lot more to it. I'd say it's an enigma to me as well at this point because I was listening to you. But just, I think from a macro perspective, is this like, is that the future, right? Is active participation and sort of frequent bannings from Legendary Studios. So, and particularly like, let's not forget the Pro Tour bannings, right? This, this sort of, uh, this injection to artificially recreate a quote unquote new format, right? Is that, is that the future of flesh and blood? Is that a healthy sort of uh, relationship with the publisher um, and with a way of balancing the game? Or do you think that we'll see maybe less bannings, less oversight, et cetera, et cetera? Well, yeah, that's a great question. And I think it comes down to whether LSS will stick to their guns of being an eternal format, right? You look at, another game specifically Yu-Gi-Oh the other big trading card game that has had an internal format from its inception until present and inevitably as the game progresses you know there will be strategies that will be too good and the only thing to do will be to ban them if living a legend alone doesn't uh, solve this issue so um you know it, to me it's going to hit a reckoning point for legend story studios on whether or not they are going to be okay with like ever going power creep you know just like we saw in the Yu-Gi-Oh card game and as we're seeing even now we're seeing you know newer and newer heroes push out older and older ones which kind of in of itself creates a rotating format you know a lot of people don't like to to talk about it but 
you know, how many people that were testing for the Pro Tour really tested, you know, the original WTR heroes, Dorinthia and so forth? Uh, or did they just stay with the, the newer Starvo chain, um, you know, Prism, Monarch Plus heroes uh, of late? So in of itself, is that not already a rotating format? And, you know, if we're going to keep this eternal format where every card from the existence of or inception of Flesh and Blood is legal, then, you know, the only way to kind of create a new cycle of things when better things come along is either going to be power creep or banning. But uh, that opens it up an entirely different uh, can of worms. And uh, I'll, I'll give the mic over to Hayden for that one. I feel like there's a segue coming from Brendan after this, Tarek. He's going to he's put us in a corner. But uh... <laughs> I think basically James White and Legend Story Shoes have been really clear about what the use of the Living Legion system is. I think initially not so much, but I think that's been cleared up. Like it is not a balancing tool, right? That is very clear at this point. It is a it is a freshness tool, effectively. It's a tool to introduce freshness to the game uh, in a non-rotating game, which I think is, in theory, again, genius. But let's see how it plays out. Mm -hmm. um, the idea of a band... I mean, every game system has bands. Even if you look at rotating formats, right, Tarek? Like standard and magic gathering has been subject to bans over the years there was a period where they you know they did a great job with design i guess and they didn't need to ban cards it was really balanced but it is really hard fundamentally to design a game where it is perfectly balanced it is so so difficult no matter how many play testers and and devs you have it's uh you know there's always going to be things that that crop up especially as the player base grows people will find things so i think bannings and the suspended list as it is now is a reality of the game i think the suspended list is actually a really good uh, introduction in terms of what they can do with that something like autumn's touch for instance yeah that really hampers Alton, right but autumn's touch is about to rotate back in uh with with starvo going out of the format for Alton. so there's these bits and pieces i'd be interested to see how to use the suspended list moving forward but i think it's going to be a reality regardless as we move forward in a non-rotating game and even even a rotating game is going to have it to, to some degree so um I think there's they've clearly made some mistakes, you know, Duskblade uh, <laughs> being one of them. Um, even maybe you could say in, in the Briar era, did they not understand how to balance that format enough, Starvo? Like, there's these small things, but I think as long as they continue to make sure they understand and adhere to the tenets of their game, you know, things like the Rule of Four, uh, they're going to be able to design sets that aren't going to power creep the heck out of the game and introduce things through through freshness now that leads to a different question which is can they continue to do that in the design space and for a long time in a non-rotating game and make it interesting we'll have to wait and see but mm, um mr dale i'm happy you asked actually so up. You up. <laughs> is an eternal format the future of flesh and blood or i'm not here's the thing keep this in mind right i need you to i need you to sort of prime your your initial knee-jerk reaction with this concept is that a rotating format when we talk about it, it doesn't, we're not talking about it being necessary or it being imperative to sort of the, uh, the growth and competitive integrity of flesh and blood, but could a rotating format potentially make the game more interesting, more exciting and allow for more design, right? Um, and is the, basically the, the simple question I'm going to toss to you, cause I, don't, I didn't mean to prime you guys like that. Unfortunately, I threw some bias in there, but is an eternal format, the future of flesh and blood go. I want to say it is. Uh, I mean, I hope it is. And I know LSS has been vocal about this game being an eternal format. And, you know, I honestly do believe that it does have some merit. It, it is nice that, you know, when players buy cards, they know that this card will be good for, you know, so long as, as the game is legal. But as long as you have a eternal format that coincides with a rotating format, there's no reason that, in my mind, these these both can't exist because 
if like Yu-Gi-Oh, the the only thing you have is an eternal format, you have still a you know gentleman's agreement to what's actually rotating. You know, in of itself, there's still a rotation, whether or not you want to call it that. So to me, I would rather see a hard rotating format of the last three or four sets so that they can push the boundaries of design because that's where the fun is to me, right? And if we're being honest, you know, seeing another reprint of a nimbleism in a slightly different variation is kind of just like, you know, it is what it is. And I would rather them make mistakes in either being underpowered or overpowered or even lateral, you know, power shifts and and miss the mark slightly and then have that just rotate out or ban when needed rather than the game follow to a more stale kind of thing. People lose interest over time. And, you know, the, the great thing about a rotating format is it allows mistakes not to compound on each other. Where in a fraternal format is if, if, if mistakes happen, they're kind of there until you either ban it or another card comes out in the future that then makes an old card that was maybe on the fence now broken. And you have this problem of, of always looking over your shoulder being like, is this okay with thousands of other cards I've now retrospectively printed? It's such an interesting question, I think. And the one of the debates is, first of all, I think we will see this game continue to be an eternal game. And I hope so, because that's one of the reasons that I'm playing this game, to be honest. And that's the, I guess, the, what Alexis have laid out and their foundation of the first few sets. I've bought into that. I've bought into this idea that with the, the design tenants that they can continue to iterate and innovate and make the game exciting. I mean, you people had this conversation in a big way before the talent system was revealed, right? In terms of like, where does design space go next? Are we going to see a perfect example tarot choose? How many nimbleisms can you print before it becomes, you know, stale and, and the same thing? And then the talent system comes in. And I think there's even more design space for flesh and blood to explore. Now, at some point, that is going to start to peter out, right? Like, regardless of how, whether you a believer like me, and I think there's still a lot of design space, at some point that starts to peter out and you have to make a decision, right, about where you take the game. And I, I think that is a, a problem that LSS are going to have to face. I don't think it's a problem they're going to have to face in the next probably five years, to be honest. Uh, unless something drastic happens, like they deviate from the tenets of the design of the game they break something with basically a mechanic in the game or uh, a design philosophy in the game and that that could cause issues then they're gonna have to take a really hard look at what they're going to do with the the game moving forward but if that happens to be honest flesh and blood is really delicate because of the uh, the basically the the way that the game is designed and these these design principles that they have like it is very delicate like if they do break one of these it could just break the entire game uh because of the hero based uh, class based system and that is like a genuine concern i have i think they have to be so so careful but i, I think so far they're doing a pretty good job even with some of the mistakes that have been made so um yeah i think we're going to see an eternal format i hope we do and i i do think it's good for the game but to your point i could also see a rotating format coming at some point i wouldn't mm. be mad about it they could exist together right um there's some there's an important concept you talked about there which is sort of the last thing i want to touch on here which is you said you bought into the game because of that promise right and it's, it's a big reason why you're playing that game would you hold on to that right would you say no it has to be eternal we won't rotate etc cetera, etc cetera if you started to see the game suffer as a result of that eternal model, right? Or do you think that you'd be like, okay, we tried it. It was, we had a good idea. We had a vision. Maybe it didn't work out. An eternal format and a rotating format could potentially exist together and there can be competitive events for both. Maybe they go this route of, I guess, Magic the Gathering kind of went this route where they had these sort of larger formats that were sort of in regular tournaments, but then they started to kind of not be as you know, featured, right? Uh, 
things like legacy, vintage, you know, they're more fringe at this point. Um, like, could that be where we go, right? My my vision for an autonomous form or for a rotating format, just quickly, and I don't really want to go too deep into it because we're running out of time, but I don't know the specifics. I don't know if this would be right or wrong. You can probably poke and hold it within 10 seconds, but say you hard rotate, right? You come out with a core set, four heroes. Maybe you have Prism, Kano, a new ninja, and then let's say a new class, like a shape, or not a shape, uh, freaking, let's say like a summoner or something, right? Whatever it is. Yeah, like a bard. <laughs> a bard that doesn't piss everybody off in a UPF tournament. Um, and then you have another set, four more heroes. Same kind of model, right? Maybe recycling old ones, taking in old classes, maybe adding in a new class. doesn't really matter. Then one supplemental set, then hard rotate, right? I think that <clears throat> potentially we could really stretch design, we could potentially have much more fun formats, and we could learn a lot of lessons as we go from format to format on sort of what heroes in conjunction with each other create these like these fun interactive experiences that, that players enjoy. I'm not saying we're not there right now. We're not saying that flesh and blood is not fun or et cetera, et cetera. But that's sort of my vision or my first vision. It's the first thing I see. But I absolutely believe, and I think it's foundational to this argument that these two things would exist together, right? The eternal format and the rotating format would both be competitively viable. Yeah, and to go what to answer your first part, I would never be upset if LSS changed their mind. I am a you know it is part of my core belief that as you get new information, so should your mindset change about you know the info the, the things that that information provides. So it would be perfectly fine with me if LSS you know two years, three years, four years, whatever tomorrow even you know, said, Hey, you know, we have more data now, you know, I know we said X, Y, Z, but one, two, three shows that this, you know, is more enjoyable and, and they make a change going forward. So I would never, you know, fault them for it. You know, there inevitably will be some people that would pick up a pitchfork and come at them for, for breaking a promise, but their are only, you know, promise to me is that they're making an enjoyable game. And as so long as they continue to do that, I am okay with, whichever avenue they go i think they've done and i want to be clear you know we are critiquing a lot of things that they're doing but they have done something that so few games have done before which is create a viable tcg that has survived in its own right and more than that has been a game that not just me but hundreds and thousands of other people have actively enjoyed thinking about as a pastime and you're competing for the attention span of you know, thousands of people is such a difficult thing to do, not just in gaming, but in any aspect of the world overall. Companies pay millions of dollars for marketing just for seconds of your attention span. And this game has captivated that just by being a fundamentally amazing game to play. So they're doing a really good job already. And if they find a reason to change something that they previously promised, I'm all on board for that. And I hope they do. Yeah, I think it's context and execution to your first question, Brendan. Like, would I be okay with it? Would I feel like a promise has been broken? Uh, I think there's going to be different reactions, like like Tarek says. But for me, it's it's context and execution, like in terms of how they do it. If it's the right decision for the for the game, and you know they execute it in the way that makes sense. Like my concern, right, would be okay. You bring in a rotating format. How do you how do you devote enough resources to be able to maintain both those formats? We've seen it in in games like Magic, and that's a massive game, right? It's been hard for them to 
to be able to balance uh, a limited format, a standard format, and then basically a, a non-rotating or a longer length format. And they've they've taken dips at it, right? We saw initially they had like an extended format, then they became like this kind of shorter extended format, then they moved to the modern format. And there's, it's gone through different iterations. And I think that was a good thing for that game, right? Like there is, like Tarek says, as information becomes available and as the game needs to develop, you make the decisions based on that and you communicate it to the player base. And I think as long as Alice do that, they're going to have the support of the majority of the player base. Um, I guess in, in terms of like the, the last part, like what does a rotating format potentially look like or how could it be? The only kind of like concern I have is that one of my favorite things about Flesh and Blood is the card pool and is what we have available to us for design. Now, as sets come out and more sets come out and we move on, that becomes less important, I think. But what I said earlier on, I'm going to come back to this point I made earlier on about the first two sets in particular, but even Crucible, starting up here and being important to this game in a diminishing way, but really it's going to take a long time. It's going to have a really long tail. And I think that's really true. And I think some of the the fundamental things that Alice have done in the first few sets have really set this game up for success as an eternal game. And uh, I think that's what's going to basically continue to drive this idea of of an eternal game is uh, the, the foundation that's there. We've st- Alice has started with really strong design principles and really good grounding in their game, I think. And I think that's going to carry them through and, and be what's kind of the strength as this game continues to move as an eternal game. And then, yeah, maybe at some point we, you know, I, I don't see it to be honest. I don't see us getting a rotating format. I don't see it happening. But for some reasons that could eventuate as we go down the track, it could. Yep. Well, Hayden, I, I hear what you said. I just want to reiterate for the audience. LSS had strong design principles. You really stuck to their guns, you know, Intelligent design. And then they printed Starvo. Just kidding, of course. But <laughs> I knew you were going to go that <laughs> yeah. every time. Uh, awesome. So, Tarek, I want to thank you so much for joining us. Um, I hope you all enjoyed this conversation. Tarek is one of the more intellectual thinkers in the game, so it's awesome to have him come on and speak his mind on sort of the design. I think he helped me figure out more of what my opinions are <laughs> just in this conversation. But, Tarek, in closing, you are also a content creator. Do you want to shout out, uh, you know, your Twitter, anything you're doing in the space right now? I'm going to actually go ahead and shout one out for you. So I don't know if you guys have ever, you know, experienced the Magic the Gathering history that is the Chlogs or the Paul Chim vlogs, but there is now the Chlogs, which sounds a bit naughty, but these are the Tarek vlogs that he's doing at these tournaments, callings, pro tours. Check them out. This is history. This is how you relive uh, flesh and blood vicariously through Mr. Patel here. Um, So yeah, I'm going to let you take it. Well, th- thank you for the kind words. Uh, and Brendan is right. I have been vlogging my experience at the Callings and the Pro Tour, and I plan on doing it in Vegas, uh, which I understand I'll see you there, Brendan. Mm-hmm. So um, they're just a fun little project of mine. You know, it's weird to think of myself in, in a content creator way. I still don't fully do it. I merely see myself as a player that's enjoying this game to its full extent. And I'm enjoying the, you know, content creator process, if, if that's what you want to call it. And the vlogs have been a ton of fun. Uh, just, you know, cataloging the experience of, of the whole Dragon Shield, you know, thing was was amazing to be a part of. The whole uh, LSS banquet dinner was amazing to be a part of. So if you guys, you know, were unfortunately stuck at home or, you know, can't travel to France, can't travel to Vegas, I think this is just a fun little thing I'm doing that you guys can come along with. But uh, like Brendan said, uh, Tark Patel 10 uh, is my tw- Twitter handle. Um, and I write articles over on channelfireball.com. Uh, if you want to, you know, get more of my uh, writings or, or musings, uh, that's where to find me. I was waiting for you to say, Tarek, when you said uh, Brendan's right. I am the most intellectual thinker in uh, Flesh and 
<laughs> Brennan's just happy that we didn't argue. What? <laughs> nah, 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 nah. That, see, this is see this. I mean, for the record, I think that this was this was a healthy discussion, right? We this is, we avoided a uh, a debate. I felt like we collectively found sort of a more objective truth that we all believe in through conversation, which is a novel concept in today's world. But let's go ahead, Hayden. We're gonna go ahead and close this one out. I know we've run a bit long, Tarek. Thank you again, and can't wait to um, just fucking steal that trophy out of your hands in Vegas. All right, looking forward to it. <laughs> All right, Hayden, with that, let's go ahead and head into our Google review of the week. We've got Please. one from <laughs> Tuss O the Best. All right, this one is probably safe. Um, thank you so much for the review. But he said, if, John Bra- if Johnny Bravo and Australian Seth McFarlane learned to play TCGs at the top level and decided to make a podcast to help everyone else, this would be it. I was terrible at flesh and blood, and I'm semi-okay at it. After listening to this podcast, I've learned how to think like a pro, what decks and cards you should focus on, and how to style my lettuce. Brennan and Hayden uh, keep you updated on fab events, break down top-level events and plays, and host the cookout section that I still haven't been invited to. If you're looking for the best of the best when it comes to Flesh and Blood podcasts, subscribe to Arsenal Pass immediately. Well, thank you so much Great for the, yeah, the nice review. I know we got a, a lot more funny ones in the bank. Um, but yeah, Hayden, if someone wanted to submit another review and try to be featured on the Arsenal Pass, Arsenal Pass podcast, how would they do it? Oh, easy. Uh, <laughs> RateThisPodcast.com forward slash Arsenal Pass. Uh, link is down in the description if you're on YouTube, actually, so you can check it out there. That's it, Brendan. That's going to bring us to the end of the show. Uh, great to have the doctor in the house, Mr. Tarek Patel. Great discussion, I thought. Really interesting. Thank, thank you, Brendan, for, I think, bringing that topic to the table. Uh, it's something that you kind of just said, we're doing this. And I was like, okay, I'll I, I listen to you. Well, let's do it. And I think some really great questions. I think having Tarek on for like his perspective is is really important. Like He's someone who is very vocal about the game, but also has, uh, has come from... like starting this game more recently than maybe say you you and me and uh, has, a, has a different perspective which i think is really important so great to have him on with that said do want to just put a quick shout out to our youtube channel uh if you aren't already subscribed this is where we load our our deck guides our sorry our deck techs our um podcast goes up there as well you might be already listening to it there uh we do also have other videos that go up there um we did some like limited reviews for the welcome try farewell we'll do some for uprising uh we do you know all sorts of things gameplay we're going to get back some gameplay as well other than that, if you do want to uh, head up our Patreon as well and support us, you can get extra content there as well. We do a monthly additional podcast on basically whatever we want, usually a level up topic, but uh, generally just whatever we want to talk about that doesn't fit into our schedule for the main topics of the pods. We do also have the, whenever we throw up a deck tech, we'll throw up a full deck guide up there as well. So you can check all those out. Dash has gone up, Kano's gone up, Tyler Horsepool's Prism has just gone up as well. So you can check that out. And uh, we're on Twitter. You can see our Twitter handles if you're on YouTube there, just paste it down there. But uh Brendan APG for the man next to me. And then I'm at Fian underscore Dale. Come chat to us, all things flesh and blood. Fab Twitter's great. I've uh, been enjoying it. So come and get involved in the discourse. Other than that, Brendan, that's, uh, that's all for this week. And we'll see you next week. Yep.